0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. All right, we're going to be getting into the word here this morning. If you got your Bibles turned to James chapter 4, And we're going to get after it today. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, There's Bibles in the back on the back table. If you don't own one, we'd love just to bless you with that. And now you take it home and make it your own and use it as much as you are able. Let me pray for us and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the privilege of being a part of baptisms and seeing you work to birth new life, Father, in the lives of these three. Father, thank you just for this fall, for the, for the new life that we've been able to celebrate as we've seen person after person come and proclaim that they are trusting your son to pay the penalty for their sins, to, uh, to give them new life, that you carry them all the way home. Father, I pray that you would deepen our love for you, that you would deepen our confidence in your grace, that you'd deepen our passion for your mission and for making the name of Jesus known in our city and around the world. Father, as we turn now to your word, would you instruct us today by your spirit? Would you open the eyes of our eyes and the ears of our ears that that we might hear deep in our soul the things that we need to hear? And Father, if there is one here that does not know you, one here who is still relying upon themselves, that's trying to make it through life on their own, God, would you break through that hard heart and soften it? Give them a heart of flesh that they might receive the gospel today. Father, by your grace, we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Like I said, we are in James chapter four, and last week Russ did a great job of sharing with us from uh, verses just prior to this. And as we, as, as I listened back to his sermon, was talking about disoriented desires and how they can live lead to a disoriented life. And it's really humility that helps us to reorient our life, that helps us to bring some of those disoriented desires back under control and then work themselves out in a healthier way in terms of our life. And so today we're gonna be talking about humility. Verse 10 in the passage Russ looked at last week really gives us the gospel in a nutshell. And it says, humble yourself, therefore and God will exalt you. When we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. There's kind of a, a gospel balance in that. That as we, as we bring ourselves down, God will raise us up. And so there's something in that that, is, uh, that, that really encapsulates the gospel. And, and today we're gonna talk about that, but we're gonna kind of invert it in a little bit of a different way. We're gonna look at a corollary that says the opposite. If you exalt yourself, you'll actually be humbled. So last week we said, if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. What we see in the passage this week is that if you exalt yourself, you'll actually become humbled. And so the opposite or the inverse of that works. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible is not first of all a moral book. The Bible is, I think first of all, a truth-telling book about the way life is. And what we see in so many of these passages, one of the things we're gonna look at today is, and there are laws that are built into the universe in the way the world works. The laws that God is hardwired into everything that we do and everything that we are. And that happens here, it happens in Ecuador, it happens in Russia, it happens in France, it happens in Africa, it happens everywhere around the universe, the world works in certain ways. And we're gonna look at one of those today. What we're gonna see is that the way up is the way down. The way up is really the way down. Everything seems inverted. Um, Jesus said to us that whoever would save his life needs to lose it. And whoever would lose his life will actually save it. And these things seem to press in on us in some strange ways and make us a little uncomfortable because they're not the way we typically think about how to navigate life in this world, right? And so as we begin to look at this, one of the things that, uh, that we're gonna see is that our world's filled with clashing approaches to life. And the gospel sometimes comes in and wants to rearrange our perspective and reorient kind of the way in which we approach life. Now, any of you have any issues with kind of personal space? Like you just, you don't like it when people get a little too close. And Americans, we tend to like to keep people on the fringe. Like, and I like you, I like you kind of over there. I don't like you right here. And if you travel internationally and find out that people in other cultures operate different ways. We were going to India and standing in a crowd, and there was a line, and we were waiting. And as we waited, people just began to press in. And I was by myself, and I was the only kind of white dude around anywhere. And so we were kind of feeling this thing, and they kept crowding in. And then in fact, like a dad would come up, and he'd stick his foot across in front of me, and he'd kind of do this, and then everyone else would scoot in front of me in line. And I just did it. Finally, I just remember going, anyone else want to move up? I'm just going to kind of try to slide back because I needed some space. And this is one of those texts that's gonna crowd into your personal space. This this is gonna feel like God's kind of getting in your mix a little bit today and he's gonna get a little close. And I think all of us are gonna feel a little bit pressed in upon as we look at this. And so what we're talking about today is humility, lowliness of mind. Humility is the ability to recognize that there's someone who's not you who's actually in charge. And so we are gonna get to look at this day. So y'all ready to go? Let's go James chapter four. And we're gonna look at verse 13. Just got a few verses here today, verse 13. "'Come now, you who say, "'Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town "'and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. "'Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. "'What is your life? "'For you are a mist that appears "'for a little time and then vanishes. "'Instead, you ought to say, "'If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. "'As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, this is the word of the Lord in James. And I love what it is he has to say. And I think as we get into this, uh, we're gonna see the beauty of what he's pressing in on. But he starts out, he kind of comes out swinging, right? Notice what he says at the very beginning. He says, come now, you who say, and it's, it's like he's just calling you out right from the get-go, right? Come on, who, who are you to say? It's kind of what he's saying. We might add something now, like "Do you feel me? Are you feeling me?" Like because the, you know nowadays we we throw something in on the tag, on the back end to make sure you understood that, like I'm coming at you here. And James is doing that, and he says, "Come now, you who say today or tomorrow." Now, obviously, he's talking about a hypothetical situation, right? Like this is he didn't have a specific individual in mind. He says, "You who say, come now, today or tomorrow." we'll go to such and such a city and do this or that. And so this is kind of a hypothetical scenario that he wants us to understand. And as he comes into this, he's really talking about a well-off businessman, a merchant probably that was a traveling business, uh, had traveling business dealings around the country and would go to different places. And this is someone who sees the world through the lens of, of, or sees his life through the lens of profit and success and making a buck. Sounds like anyone you know? Like anyone in our city? I mean, do you know anyone in our city that, that, that schemes and plans for trying to make a living and how to make a little bit more so that they're not quite as pressed in as they were last year and maybe can retire someday? Uh, any of you have any of those conversations in your house? Yeah, that's kind of who this is talking about. He's talking about more or less everyone in Edmund and Oklahoma City. Uh, th- this is kind of who James is speaking to here. And you notice that they're not making kind of over-the-top outlandish statements, right? Like they're not, they're not tweeting out crazy, insane things that make you realize how puffed up they are. They're just, this is two average dudes sitting around over a cup of coffee going, hey man, what are your plans? What are you thinking about in life? And they go, and here's what I'm thinking is gonna come my way. And here's what I'm planning. and Here's what I'm, here's what I'm scheming about. So they're not openly arrogant. You notice know, so it's a little more subtle than that. You know, there's two different ways to be arrogant. There's, a, there's an open arrogance and then there's kind of a hidden arrogance. And the hidden arrogance is something that's a little more subtle. And it sometimes comes through more in what you don't say than what you do say. Sometimes it comes through in the tone of your voice or maybe just in your mindset and the approach. And you sense that here that their cockiness is not so much kind of this bold out front thing, but it's kind of something that's undergirding the surface. James is really talking about people that are just, they're presumptuous, Right? They just go, I mean, I think I can sort of dictate how life's going to work. I think I know how to navigate this. I know how to, try to chart my course, make a plan, and I'm going to go for it. And so they're presumptuous in the way in which they, in which they move forward. And, and what, you notice in that one sentence, there's four different ways in which they think they're in control of their lives. Notice first, they think that time is under the control today or tomorrow, whenever I feel like it, I'm gonna go ahead and make this decision. So they think their, their time is totally up to them and under their control. Secondly, you see that their position is under the control. We're gonna go to this or that town, this city. Like I get to, I get to set my trajectory. I get to dictate my life. I, my position is sort of under my control. Thirdly, we see that their future is under their control. We're gonna stay there about a year. Like I, I can project in the future, I know. And I'll just, I look down and I go, I think a year seems like a good time to do that. That's what I'm, I'm gonna do. And then I'll come back and be back in this area. They also think they can dictate the profit. They can control the outcome of their efforts and the things they do. I mean, four things in one sentence that they're just presumptuous and saying, I I think I've got this under control. I think my life is pretty well set and I can control it. And these are just entrepreneurial dudes that, are looking for security and prosperity. And they think that they think that their future is, is pretty well under control and they can control it. They think that that future profit is gonna give them a sense of security, a sense of worth, a sense of value. And it's pretty easy to live that way, isn't it? Pretty easy to wake up in the morning and go, man, what's my deal? Like, I gotta be at the office. Got to clean myself up, maybe shave, maybe skip it. That's why I wear a beard, so I don't have to. But, you know, you at least wash your hair, try to make sure things are generally in place. Find a shirt that's not dirty and wrinkled and and then go to the office and you're going to do your work. You're going to do your thing. Hopefully you're going to excel at it. Hopefully you're going to make some connections, work things out do the right things and you're going to make a profit. You're going to be able to chart a course for yourself. That's kind of what these guys are saying. And I think the, the corollary or the question that we, the obvious question we want to ask there is, so what's James saying? Is he saying we shouldn't plan ahead? Is, is he saying we shouldn't profit? I mean, is James saying it's wrong for us to craft a plan and to have a five-year plan for, for what's ahead? And there's plenty of places in the Bible where it actually encourages us to plan ahead. The Bible talks about our stewardship of the things that we've been given. The Bible talks about using our gifts wisely. The Bible talks about not, uh, not trying to, to, to do something that... Um, you haven't counted the cost for before you committed. The, the, the Bible says, don't, uh, don't swear to your own hurt, meaning think ahead enough not to promise something you can't deliver on that's gonna hurt you later. So all over the Bible, when you look at this, when you look at this book, there's wisdom throughout the book that says, you no, know, a wise man plans ahead. A wise man thinks about the things that are coming his way. A wise man charts his course in a healthy way. So he's not saying we shouldn't plan ahead. Is he saying we shouldn't try to profit? No, I don't think he's saying that either. Any, anyone that's ever interacted in business knows that's the case too. He's not, so he's not saying that we shouldn't get life insurance. He's not saying we shouldn't plan for college. Um, high school students, can I get an amen? Um, he's not saying that we shouldn't chart out a five-year plan for our business venture that we're launching into. That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is don't be arrogant and presumptuous about it don't think that that dictates everything in life. In fact, what we see in the New Testament is that God actually tells us we are to profit. God actually tells us we are to, uh, to, to, uh, to be wise in our dealings. In fact, you know, Ephesians four, there's an interesting passage there where Paul is talking. He's talking about someone who has, has intersected, Jesus has intersected their life and they previously had been a thief. And so there's someone who, uh, we don't really know their story, whether it's white collar, blue collar. We don't know exactly what their ethnicity was. You don't know anything about them. You just know that, I and mean, they were stealing from other people. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. How do you know that a thief has really met Jesus? Well, it's not when he stops stealing, it's when he starts working so that he can have something to give to others and to the mission of God. See, fact- when your heart changes, it's not that you stop doing the bad stuff. You actually get your life reoriented and you want to begin to contribute something positive. You actually want to do good for others. And so it, uh, whenever you receive grace from Christ, it's gonna foster in you a generosity that's gonna make you want to be a blessing to other people. That's what you see here. So the Bible's not against profit or planning. In fact, anyone who ever tried to make a bit, tried to launch a business and purposely said, I don't want to make money. That's... No one operates that way. Like we just understand this is the way life works that if you operate a business and that was true in ancient cultures, that's true in other parts of the world, that's true today, you're trying to make a profit. So what's the point that he's trying to get at? He's saying, it's okay to do those things, but don't do it merely out of self-presumption, merely out of self-confidence, merely out of gain for self, but understand that you still must live under the reign and the rule of God. So you don't see all this in this verse, but the verses that follow. this we become a little more clear. So let's keep going. Uh, you want to humble a guy, read him verse 14. Verse 14 says, "Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're just a mist that will appear for a moment before vanishing." And how can such a wimpy little speck as you on this spinning planet have any idea what's going to happen as this planet? revolves around its hinges. I mean, you have no control. You can't dictate what's gonna happen tomorrow. I and mean, you are just a, you're a dot upon a dot of a city that's a dot of a country on a globe that's spinning in a universe where our, where our planet is the, is the most minute speck we can imagine in the mind of God. We, we, don't, we don't see everything that we are. And, and I think when you look at what James is saying here, he's saying the span of your life is not in your control. And what's happening for these guys is they're not approaching life in a way that's in line with their beliefs. They're not really understanding how it is that they are to, to operate under God's sovereignty and under his perspective in terms of, in terms of their life. You know that any human seizure of God's place always leads us to a dangerous place. Anytime we try to put ourselves in the place of God, this was the sin going back to the Garden of Eden is that they began to question what God said and think maybe they could do it a little better. And anytime that happens in our life, it's both dangerous and damning because we're we're usurping God's rightful place on the throne of our lives and saying, you know what, I'm gonna slide you off the throne and I'm gonna perch there because I think I've got something better to offer it. So what's James saying? He's saying, don't be arrogant. You know, my favorite place where, eh, one of my favorite places in the Bible where God actually calls out someone for their arrogance and begins to address this takes place in Job. Job uh, chapter 38 to 42, and it's a long passage that I'm not going to read at all. I'm going to spare you a little bit of that, but let me just read you a little bit to give you a sense of what, uh, what God says to Job after he's been questioned. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And if God of the universe comes to you and says, dress for action like a man, I will question you and you will make known to me what is true. uh, You're kind of in a dangerous spot there, right? Listen to what he says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Man, sarcasm in God, that gets tough. Surely you know the dimensions of the earth. And like you go, well, yeah, I do. I've got Google, right? Like we think technology is gonna make us so wise that we can determine all this stuff. And I promise you, God can undo that too. So if you wanna keep talking, you know, you can, but I'm just gonna say, let's keep reading and kind of see the tone of what God says here. Who stretched the line upon the earth? Or uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who shut in the sea with doors and who burst when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds and its garment, its thick darkness, its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And where were you when I set the borders on the oceans that I put in motion? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And going down a little further, um, this one may come into play for us this week. It sounds like Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow? And have you seen the storehouses of the hail? which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and the desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? And do you hear the tone that God is bringing where he's questioning and saying, man, I call the dawn every morning. Do you have that kind of ability? You who would speak wisdom into the world, do you have the ability to call out the snow and cause it to fall? Do you have, a, do you have the ability to channel the waters to make the canyons that, that I have watched over for years and years? And he goes on down. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings to the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? God sees every bird that's flying on the face of the planet. And he knows where they land and he knows where they nest and he oversees it all. And he says, shall a, and God turns back to Job at the end and says, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Listen to Job's response. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. And I love the honesty there. He's like, I called you out once, okay, twice, but I put my hand over in my mouth now and I will not call you out any further. And the Lord challenges Job again and he continues. And you get to the end and Job answers the Lord again, says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, Job says. I, I began to speak. And do you see that the point that Job, that God wants Job to understand? Is Job, I, I love you and I made you and I created you and I want a relationship with you. But whenever you call me out, whenever you think you've got it down and I don't, you need to understand there's a whole lot bigger world out there than what you sometimes see and what you sometimes acknowledge. So let me play counselor with you for just a minute. How does that make you feel to hear that? Do you feel small? Do you feel insignificant? Do you feel like maybe I don't hold the world together? Um, I think that's an appropriate response. I think there's also some additional things that God wants us to feel that we'll get to a little bit later. But I think we have to go through the sense of God is much bigger than we are. God is sovereign and he's overall and we are not. And we are not capable of bearing the weight of the world. We're also not called to. But you notice in Job, in verse 14, he says, who are you? And he says, you're a mist. You're something that, and you, you fly out and you're gone in the morning. That when the sun comes up, the mist that you see begins to dissipate. You're like a balloon that someone blows up and lets go and it just fl- flies around the earth or around the room and then it's gone. Mist could be a smoke, it could be a vapor. Um, as you begin to think about this, it was interesting this week, I saw one guy, what he's really, what, what, why is James talking about this right here? I think he's trying to help address the kind of presumptuousness, the, the, the pomp and arrogance of these businessmen who think they have the world under control. Uh, can I just nerd out for a minute? like as a writer, there's like three of us that'll probably appreciate this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Uh, can I, there was one sentence I read this week that I read this and I went, man, that is awesome. This guy is a, is a wordsmith. Now, one of the commentaries I read, Luke Timothy Johnson said this. He said, the evanescent quality of life is an effective deflator of pomposity. And he said that as over the top, I think, as he possibly could, because he's saying is that we puff ourselves up and we've got this kind of arrogant pomp about the way we think about the world, the way we talk about it. It's like, I'm going to go to this or that city and I'm going to make a little bit. I'll come back in a year and I'm going to do all these things. And, And so he makes it kind of this overwhelmingly pompous statement of the effervescent quality of life is an effective deflator of pomposity. And it needs to be spoken in some kind of British accent, which... Anyone that knows me knows my accents all sound Russian, but that's a whole different issue. But then he goes on, he says, How can these entrepreneurs plan on their selling and gain for a year when they cannot even guarantee that they will see tomorrow? You know, we we sometimes need to get our pop deflated, we need to get our arrogance kind of pushed out of us. You know, as I think about this passage, why do you think James brought this to mind? here. Why did you think he brought it up? I think it's because he knows that it's good to live with the end in mind, that he wants us to understand that we are not always in charge. You know, one of the honors I have as a pastor is to be in the room with a lot of uh, families at the end of life, and in a handful of circumstances over a number of years, I just I have the, the privilege of really of being a part of a really intimate moment where families are, are, are saying their goodbyes to their dearest loved ones and in that moment as we sit with them and as I'm invited in that to to read some scripture to pray and just to pray for that family you know I've never been in one of those rooms where it felt arrogant or pompous it always feels humble because there's something about the end of life something about the recognition that I mean, our life is a mist that can be gone in a minute there's something about listening to the heavy breathing of someone who may be breathing their last that's just humbling because you know at any moment that last breath may may slip out and it may be gone and there's something quiet in that moment. I think that's what James wants us to understand is in the midst of us, of all of our plans, of all the things we're doing, of all the the, the, the courses that we're charting, there's times when we just need to sit and to be quiet and to be humble in recognizing that, uh, that we don't hold everything in our hands. This shows up all throughout the scriptures. In fact, Psalm 102 says, For my days pass away like smoke. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But friends, here's the good news, okay? Psalm 102 continues, and the next verse says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. The earth is gonna wear out like like old clothes that you cast aside and give away to goodwill. The earth is gonna wear out. You change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But God, you are the same, and your years have no end. friends, if we wanna live well, we have to live with the end in mind. If we wanna live well, we have to realize that that there's a birth date, and there's a death date on every tombstone, and there's a dash in the middle, and we're in the middle of that dash right now. And, And we need to invest that dash to the best of our ability. And what we understand is that God is over all of that. He's over the beginning, he's over the end, and he's over everything in between. And so we need to surrender to him and live as though it's all his. Psalm 90, 12, verse worth memorizing and giving yourself to. Says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So we, we need to understand the course of our life and, and the, somehow that informs us and gives us wisdom by which we can live. You know, it's not a uniquely Christian thing to understand that life comes to an end though, right? I mean, like anyone on this planet can look around and realize that things don't go on forever. Anyone that, that, that walks through the, this earth knows that every newspaper has an obituary column. Like it's not particularly Christian knowledge that life comes to an end. And so what we really have to do is take it a step further than that because it's not necessarily spiritual just to recognize that things do stop eventually. What's critical is realizing that your life is in God's hands. Verse 15, Verse 15 says, if the Lord wills. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my place. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then as we begin to think about uh, that statement, if the Lord wills really puts everything in, in perspective, right? See, it's not enough just to say life is short. It's actually better to say God is sovereign. Life is short, but God is Sovereign. God is over it all and our lives can be entrusted to his hand. Do you know our world's not a closed system? It's open way more than it is. And what we tend to see with our senses and with our experiences is such a small, narrow scope of what really exists in the universe. And our universe is so much bigger and yet God oversees it all and none of it spins him out of control. What's amazing to me is my little life, like I've got so few little things to manage in life but it can spin me completely out of control. I can get my mind and my heart wrapped around things and things come a little bit unraveled. And man, it can trip me out. And I can just start to come unglued in those little things. But you know, God sees all of our lives and everything in it, and not just in this city and everywhere else. And it doesn't rattle him for a second. There's nothing about it that makes him pull back and go, I can't handle it, I'm washing my hands of all this. No, he stays engaged. He's still there. He's still overseeing it all. So you see when James calls us, he says, your life's just a mist, but you need to approach life a little differently. You need to see it a little bigger. You need to say, if the Lord wills, then chart your course and understand that everything falls under his hand. Now, I think it's important to think through, is James just saying, like throw a nice tagline on everything? Like if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord, like you could, that could become repetitive and just kind of a ritualistic thing. It could be kind of like someone sneezes and you say what? Bless you. So you you know how that works, right? And so we do that all the time, but we don't really think anything spiritual about it. If the Lord wills could be kind of become the same way. Is that what James is getting at? That we just need some kind of magic phrase to throw on things to kind of Give us, a, give us a little bit of an out. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, if you think about everything we've learned in the book of James to this point, everything has said, no, we've got this internal thing called faith and this external thing called works or words or actions, and those need to be in line. And so when he's saying, if you say, if the Lord wills, what he's saying is, you need to operate out of heart that knows that you are dependent upon God, that knows that God is sovereign, that knows that everything in your life falls under his purview. And if the Lord wills, then you chart your course. And so your words ought to match what's going on inside. Authentic faith and real spirituality looks to God for guidance in everything. Everything falls under his care. If the Lord wills, you know the title Lord refers specifically to the Christian God? He's not just saying, throw some kind of a divine disclaimer on on this thing. He's saying, no, you need to understand there's a a personal God of the universe that's over everything, who spoke and the world came into existence, who holds it together by the word of his power. If he he released it, that we would all fly off this earth and gravity would be no more, but that he holds it together and he sustains it, that every morning when you wake up and you go, it means he's given you breath. It means he's given you life. And you need to understand that with a heart that knows that every single moment of your life rests with God. You know, Jesus taught us this. In Matthew 6, he taught us to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And there's a statement there in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he taught us to pray if the Lord wills. Lord, your will be done. You know, at the most critical moment in his life, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was facing uh, imminent death and he knew that it was coming and he prayed to the Lord and what was it that he prayed? He said, your will be done to his heavenly father. He said, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So you see this in Jesus' life and after Jesus in the rest of the New Testament, you see this phrase show up over and over and over. And it's almost as though everyone understood, different, understood to a new degree how imminent the, the life was in terms of God's control over everything and how present God was in the earth and in the workings of the earth. And they continually said these things of, if the Lord wills. So Acts 18, it says, but taking leave of them, Paul said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set out sail to Ephesus. Acts 21, and since he would not be persuaded, all the people ceased to argue with him and said, well, let the, Lord, let the will of the Lord be done. Uh, you see it again in uh, 1 Corinthians. It says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And so you see this idea that everything in life is kind of comes under this umbrella of God's sovereignty, that if the Lord wills, then we'll go and we'll do these things. And we see this throughout the history of the church. Did you know that there was a time in the history of the church, where, or history of uh, society, where everyone would sign a letter and at the bottom of the letter they would put the, the initials D period, V period. And what that stood for was Deo Valente, which means God willing. And it was considered rude if whenever you had any correspondence, any business dealings, any letter with someone, if you didn't sign it DV, because it was considered presumptuous, that I guess you don't think you need God's help. You can just tell me whatever you wanna do. And so they would sign every letter and they would put DV at the bottom saying, God willing, this will all come to pass. And they lived with a sense of God's constant presence. You know, we need to learn to say this too, that we would live in such a way that would say, if God wills, my kids will go off to college. If God wills, my kids will make millions in the NFL and donate it back. No, uh, you, you don't, I, I, I'm, that may be too far. Uh, if, if God wills, then I will spend my twilight years playing invested in this way or with family. If God wills, we will grow our income. If God wills, I will find a spouse, if God wills, our church will become fill in the blank. Right? We, we need to live with this sense, this constant sense that and everything's under God's purview. And we don't have control over all these things. Friends, do you invite God into the course of your everyday life? Do you invite him in to the moments, to the days, to all the stuff? Or do you kind of think that, well, Jesus came and so I've got insurance for when that death date comes and between now and then everything's up to me. So what James is saying is that's not the case. That in fact, we have to trust him now. If you look at verse 15, it's fascinating. He says, two, there's two distinct ways in which he says, we have to trust the will of God. He says, if God wills, what? What's the first thing? We will live. Do you realize your life is a gift? That's the first gift of God. If God wills, and you'll live tomorrow. If God wills, you'll wake up again in the morning. If God wills, you'll live. And then he says, secondly, and if God wills, we'll do this or that. Meaning, that it's both our life that's been given, but it's also our days, all the things that happen between birth and death that we bring to God and say, if God wills then we've got life and if God wills, we'll continue to live and to do these things. And maybe deep down, we know that God's gonna take care of the, the final date, but maybe we don't trust him with the moments and with our kids and with our relationships and with our investments and with our business and with all the things we have. And maybe we need to surrender those to him as well. Verse 16 says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You boast and brag. It's, it's kind of a funny phrase. He says, you boast in your arrogance. Meaning like you're proud, of your, you're, you're proud of your pride. You're arrogant about your arrogance. There's almost a sense in which you're so over the top with that, that there's a problem. And he actually doesn't say, well, that's just an unhealthy mindset. He actually calls it evil. He calls it sin. He says it's a problem. See, they think their time, direction, dur, uh, duration of their life, their profit, everything is under their control. And James is trying to humble them. The Greeks called this hubris. Uh, there's just a cockiness that doesn't really work out in life. You know, there's a football story of a young, uh, young football player in, in that was kind of talking trash to the opponent before game and kept talking smack and was letting them know like everything he was bringing to the table. And finally, a veteran pulled him over the side and said, hey, buddy, your mouth is cashing checks your body can't write. And just let him know, like, you're stepping into trouble here. One of my favorite places you see this in the Bible really takes place in uh, in 1 Kings 20, and it's Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, in Daniel Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar uh, says this, and I think we've we've got that on the screen. Uh, It says, the king answered and said, and this is after he had built, he had kind of been on the throne, done incredible things, done all kinds of stuff and built all kinds of wealth. And he steps back and steps on the hill in front of everyone and just kind of says, "Ah, oh, let me survey my greatness. And you notice what he says. The king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And do you just hear the pomp and arrogance in that? You know, the next thing we see about Nebuchadnezzar is he's on his knees eating grass like a donkey, braying, is totally out of his mind. And pride comes before the fall. When we exalt ourselves, we get ourselves in trouble. First Kings 20 says this, the king of Israel answered and says, tell him one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. This is one of my favorite quotes. I quote this to my kids different times, but, and one who puts his armor on should not brag like one who's taken it off. So you take your armor off after the battle, after you've won, then maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay to talk a little trash, but but you don't talk trash before you started the battle because that's gonna get you in trouble and always lead you in dangerous place. See, God, God will invite us to participate in his glory, but God will not allow us to compete with his glory. That's why Nebuchadnezzar was brought down. God said, I won't share my glory. I'll, I'll invite you to enjoy my glory. I'll invite you to bear my glory, but I won't allow you to compete with my glory. So, you know, we're all image bearers of God and made in the image of God, those who carry God's image out into the world, were meant to show off his glory and his goodness. And we're meant to rely on that in all of life. <clears throat> you know, when we come to this, I think, so, okay, what do we do? What do we do with this message? Do you know it can actually be freeing to acknowledge your dependence upon God? See, I think one of the things we hear when we first hear this passage is we just, we know, man, I'm, I'm not one who's supposed to, to chart out and compare the weight of my entire life. In fact, what James says is you can't, you're just a mist and you don't control tomorrow at all. You have no ability to do that. And so there's a sense in which we're being humbled. But you know, there's also some freedom in that and us acknowledging our weakness and us acknowledging our dependence. There's a sense in which we go, man, God, this is all in your hands. Like it doesn't actually all rest on my shoulders. The weight of the world actually is not going to be dictated by my skill in navigating the next 12 months that somehow I can trust you that all of this is in your hands. And if the Lord wills, then I'm going to step forward into the future and and I'm gonna step forward in confidence and in faith, trusting your goodness for me. But I don't have to carry the weight of of my children turning out perfect. I don't have to carry the weight of of my career going exactly like I planned. I don't have to carry the weight of of the stock market working exactly up and to the right the way I chart it. Friends, can I lay in on something? Like, you've got no control over any of those things anyway. Like, you've got no ability to navigate all those things. But if the Lord wills, then we can trust him as we move forward. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let me just, uh, I've gotta be short here. Notice it says, whoever knows. See, knowledge is not the problem, Right? You go back to think through what James has been saying all the way through this book. He's talking about hearers of the word, not doers of the word. What he talks about here, these are guys who are hearers of the word, not doers of the word. Knowledge is not their problem. The Bible speaks of sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are wrong things that we commit. Sins of omission are good things that we omit from our lives, things we don't do. And so here he's talking about sins of omission, that there's good stuff we're called to do with our lives and we fail to do it. But you notice knowledge is not the problem. It's not something that they don't understand what it is they're called to do. They just choose not to do it. And that's what James is getting at. Sadly, friends, when we, uh, when, when we think about our lives, what I realize in this is sermons can only give you knowledge. Sermons can't actually give you humility. Sermons can give you knowledge, but he says, whoever knows the right thing to do. I can stand up here and I can say, man, here's, a right, here's all the right things to do but I can't make you humble. Life usually has to make you humble. Usually walking through the ups and downs of life is what what makes you humble. It usually takes a divorce. It takes a bad investment. It takes a bad medical report. It takes longing for a mate that never seems to show. It takes an addiction. It takes getting fired. It takes an emotional meltdown. It takes something outside of your life to break in to let you realize that the control that you think you have is really a pretend control, that you really, you, you can't hold it all together. You're not big enough and you're not strong enough. It usually takes something from the outside and people that have experienced that, I can talk to them and they can say to me, you know what, I can tell you when it happened, it happened for me right here. It happened for me when this happened. It happened to me when I faced this hardship. It happened to me, and there's a sense of which, I mean, we are broken before the Lord and we open ourselves up and we have to trust Him with our future. And we learn to live with a, if the Lord wills, sort of a mindset, because I know if my will were true, these things would not be happening. But because I'm not in control, I have to rest in Him. Not my will, but yours be done. Friends, life is a way of humbling us all. And as you go through life, I trust that God is going to work that out in each of us. But do you know we have every reason to be humble before the Lord and also grateful? And we have been created by God. We've been chosen by grace. We've been saved by the sacrifice of his son. We've been regenerated through the new life of his spirit. We've been gifted for mission and for ministry. We've been guided from wisdom from above. We've been sent into the world for his glory and for his name's sake. We have every reason to be humble and grateful before the Lord. We just need to learn to live with a life that says, if if the Lord wills. And what does it look like for us to live and just to to live with a constant sense of of just prayerfulness about God's will for our lives. Lord, help me to trust your way today. Lord, would you guide me in my work as I navigate the meetings I have. Lord, I surrender you and I trust that your way is best even though it presses against my flesh. Lord, I, I give generously, even though it, it it presses on my fears at times, because I know it's the right thing to do. Jesus, give me strength to do what I know I should. Father, would you give me courage to talk to my friends about Jesus? Lord, would you help me to love in a way that's not defensive? What would it look like for us to live with a constant sense of the awareness of God's presence and of his will for our lives? And let me end with this. Cornelius Plantinga, his book says this. This is the point of our lives is not to get smart or get rich or even to get happy. The point is to discover God's purposes for us and to make them our own. The point is to learn the ways of loving God above all and our neighbor as ourselves. To glorify God is to do these things and by doing them, to make God's intentions in the world more luminous and God's reputation more lustrous. To enjoy God forever is to cultivate a taste for this project, to become more and more the sort of person for whom eternal life with God would be sure heaven. Man, our life is but a mist. It's here and it's gone. We've got a few short years to invest. Let's live them under his rule and under his reign. And let's not omit anything. Let's do all the good we can for the sake of his name, for the good of our world, and for our own sake. Because there's something humbling in that. And when we humble ourselves, scripture's promise that God will exalt us. Let me pray for us. Father, it's heavy to think about life in these terms, and yet we know it's good. Father, we trust that you have our best in mind. Father, we trust that you love us to the core of our being. And Father, even in our, even in our arrogance, that you love us enough to humble us. That you love us enough to allow us to run up against the walls of this world in a way that causes us to recognize that we are not in control. Father, in the midst of in the midst of our life, and the hurts and the heartaches and all the things that go with it, would you humble us that we might trust you, that we might be exalted by you. And would you let us know your great love that was poured out through Jesus. Let we pray it in his name. Amen.